do not have a Bible, if you'll raise your hand, one of our great leaders of this church will bring a Bible to you. If you don't own a Bible, that is yours. If you do own a Bible, please give it back. Um, but in the end, uh, if you've never uh, studied the book of Proverbs before, just let me remind you where it is. If you take the middle of your Bible and you open it up, you'll find the book of Psalms usually, and you go a little bit to the right and you'll find Proverbs. It's part of the Old Testament, and I will simply tell you that that's what I do for a living. I teach the Old Testament. And while indeed this book speaks a lot about the Old Covenant, it is its setting, there is never a time when you read any of the Bible rightly where its message is anything other than Christ crucified. This is not merely a preparation for the gospel when you read the book of Proverbs. It is the gospel being proclaimed in a way that humbles you, that shapes you. And indeed today, as we look at chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Proverbs, we are going to step into an ancient discussion that was before us and will go long after us. But today, its job is to invade us and to shape us and to move us that we might be His people in truth. Now, if you look on the uh, slide in just a moment, you will see my message. I don't believe in uh, hiding my intention. i be very clear. I am going to contend today that if you read Proverbs chapters 5, 6, and 7 in its context, as a part of a book, as a part of the Old Testament, and as a part of even the whole Bible, this is its message. Now, listen carefully. We must let the son of David's house and heart, even his word, overturn our own house and heart for the sake of life with God now and in the end. Let me clarify a little bit about what I mean there. We must let Jesus, the son of David, take his life, his kingdom that has come and is coming and will come again and will fill every ounce of the creation. And his heart that has affection for his father that overflows to every corner of the creation. And we have to take our house and let him rule in it. And I don't know if you know about this, um, when there is conflict between us and God, and there is, the evidence that we love him is we let him overturn us. He does this by bringing his word to us, by his word and by his spirit. And so that is where we ask our house to be overturned, our heart, our motives, our intentions, our desires to be given to him, because that is how God advances his life here and everywhere. And so now, folks, uh, as we begin to, to look at chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go quickly. I'm going to read a little bit. We're going to stop. We're going to pause. We're going to shape. But listen carefully to Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 1. Read with me. My son, hear my wisdom. Turn your ear to my understanding to keep purpose. And let your lips regard or even guard knowledge. For the foreign woman, her lips drip honey. Now listen, when it says foreign woman, that's not about ethnicity, by the way. I just want to pause and make sure we know that. This is not about non-Jews. This is about a woman who is in love with an idol. And when all said and done, I'm going to try to persuade you that you and I are as much that as we are what God is shaping us to be or find. For the lips of an adulterous woman drip honey. It's sweet. And her mouth is softer than oil, and her end is bitter like wormwood, sharp 
as the blade of a sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps march to Sheol, even the place of death. We're going to frame some of that as we go through the text, but I want to remind you of five key points. Of five key points. And by the way, you'll see me meander off of your translation. Don't worry. Um, uh, go, with, go with what you see. Don't worry about me. I'm just translating on the fly. So when we look at this, on our context here, there's five things I want you to know. The book of Proverbs is a book of Solomon's wisdom, right? Well, sort of. What do you know about Solomon? He's the wisest man who ever lived. How did it end for him? The wisest man who ever lived became a fool because he stopped listening, stopped obeying God's word. He stopped listening to the Torah. So this book is a bit of a quagmire. What if you master every aspect of human wisdom right? You know what you still get? You get death. You get death on a platter, death that you've passed on to others. Now, Solomon is very key to this book. This is a prophetic book. Now, it's yes, I know it's wisdom literature, what have you, but it is speaking as a prophet would speak to all of us and does speak to all of us. And what he does is he says this. This book is not merely Solomon's wisdom, but how to handle Solomon's wisdom. It is a commentary. Y'all ever go to the bookstore, you buy a commentary on the Bible? The Bible is its own best commentary. And the book of Proverbs is a commentary telling you how to handle Solomon's wisdom to point you to our hope in the wisdom of the son of David, though Solomon was merely a son of David who made a house, a temple that died. Now, the son of David, why talk about that? The son of David is one of the most pivotal chapters in all the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We find out that the one who was promised Adam Eve, the one who was promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the seed who will come from the tribe of Judah, is not David, but one of his sons, and he will build an everlasting house that will go on forever. That is not Solomon. Solomon's house is destroyed. So, when we look at this book, we are going to look at Solomon's wisdom and we're going to see the wisdom that goes beyond it. Now, when I say the word house, you can think of my lovely house, its address and everything. That's not exactly what I mean. When Proverbs talks about a house, it means this. A house is more than just an address. A house is a life. It's a tradition. It's a habit. It's a literally, it's a movement, especially in the life passed from one generation to the next. So when you read us talk about a house, this is not merely about the broken sink that I fell apart trying to fix yesterday. I didn't say the sink fell apart. It did, but who fell apart? <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. My kids are chuckling. They had to minister to their dad yesterday. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, you have indeed this. It's very strange. Wisdom is personified as a woman. Why? That's very easy. Because the writer of Proverbs, when he wants to understand God's wisdom, he turns back to the Torah. Oh, when I say Torah, I mean Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That first part of the Bible that you're trying to read right now is part of your Bible reading plan, probably. It is what the rest of the Bible keeps talking about. When Jesus described who he was and what he did, he just needed the Torah. And when the writer of Proverbs wants to talk about Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, he runs back to Genesis 3. And when Eve, she looked at that fruit, and it was good to make one wise. She had divine wisdom, but she was tempted by creaturely wisdom, human wisdom. And in that moment, death enters the creation. And death is the dividing line between divine wisdom and human wisdom. And the question is whether this book is giving you a list of rules that you must do to be a wise woman, or whether the book is trying to persuade you that though you are a foolish woman, though you are as foolish as Eve, man or woman or child or grandparent, whatever you are, that God can take you by his word and by his spirit and make you a wise woman. That is indeed the thrust of the book. 
And so lastly, we have to think about what wisdom is. Wisdom in the Bible is defined by how things end. If I give Isaac a million dollars tomorrow and Isaac turns to me and he says, I'm going to go have a party and spend it all in two days. I'm going to say to him, that's not wise because there's a third day coming. And then you're not going to be eating much. Now, by the way, he's really good with money. He would never do that. I might do that, but he would never do that. So we know what's wise and unwise by how things end. And in the Bible, what is the ultimate ending that matters? This is what Proverbs was talking about, the ending when God's kingdom fully comes in Christ. And unless your life is wise on the day you see the face of God, when you die or the creation dies, you're a fool. By the way, so am I. The book is going to bring us from death to life by bringing the gospel to us. As such, we're going to turn and look at, real quickly, going to the next slide here. We're going to come and look and think about this book. When it looks at Solomon's wisdom, it's part three of the outline. It's chapters 10 through 29. Listen to me. Every part of life is covered, and you are going to be intentionally overwhelmed, and you have two choices in how you want to approach this wisdom. As a technique, why are you going to put on technique? but a technique whose purpose is far greater than that. Those are your two choices. You are indeed going to decide that you are getting wisdom and you're done with it, or you need wisdom. Do you hear the difference? When you expose all these Proverbs, you're going to just be overwhelmed. And that's why the beginning of the book and the end of the book frame those Proverbs in the middle. We're in the middle of a nine-chapter speech. Nine-chapter, I know you can barely keep your eyes open. But a nine-chapter speech where an unnamed father talks to an unnamed son, and he gives the exact opposite counsel that Solomon gave. Did you hear that? The unnamed father says to the unnamed son, chase lady wisdom, avoid lady folly. And when you do that, we begin to wonder why the father is unnamed. And what we wrestle with is this father... If his wisdom is really going to last, it has to be from the beginning, and that's what the speech says. And if this wisdom really is going to last, it has to be greater than Solomon's. Indeed, we're going to see in this speech, even today, that this wisdom goes beyond Solomon because it was before him and after him. And at the ending of the book, as we long to see how all this ends, two guys who are presumably Gentiles jump up and say, I don't know much. But wisdom is defined by knowing the name of God and His Son. And then guess what? All of us lady fools, we look at that last chapter, and that's what God's shaping us to be, a bride for the Son of God. This is not a book that is meant to merely lay burdens upon you, but to show you that if you will let God overturn your life and your details of your life and your patterns of your life and your purpose of your life, you can enjoy the life that comes from God through Jesus Christ. Now, as we read, if you want to go on to the next slide, as we read, we're really, I think, three questions should play, because we're going to do this quickly. I did this much quicker this morning, so forgive me. Um, why is the father unnamed? By the way, some of you have been trained, when you read the Bible, you should never ask questions. That is exactly the wrong training. You should ask the right questions. You shouldn't be questioning, is this true? Well, of course it's true. What does it mean? Why is, it, why is this pattern there? What does this do? Well... That's a question you're supposed to have as you read. It's supposed to bring tension to you. How do these, this father and this son relate to the son of David? And when this speech is so big, how can we understand and organize it all? Glad you asked. If you look to chapter 1, I know we've been in chapter 5, but look at chapter 1. And you're going to see when you are reading, look for repetitions, look for patterns, and the author will tell you how to break it up. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. Hear my son! Chapter 1, verse 10, my son. 
Chapter 1, verse 15, my son. Chapter 2, verse 1, my son. Chapter 3, verse 1, my son. Do you, do you sense a pattern here? Chapter 3, verse 21, my son. And when you find patterns, then you'll find times where the author breaks the pattern. I'm going to tell you, we don't have time to go into it, but that's where it becomes very important. He not only, not only talks to his son, he talks to sons. And it's as if we're watching the father talk to the to rightful son, and we're being asked, do we want to be sons? That's what this speech does. The father is unnamed to draw us into a mystery. That unless God is our father and he sends his wisdom and the sending of the son and sending of the spirit, we have no wisdom and we have no life in the end. Now, as we turn now, we're going to look at our chapters themselves. Chapters 5 through 7, I use that expression, my son or in sons, and I broke it up. We've already read the first six verses, and I want to give you an understanding of what's happening. In verses 1 through 6, we saw something very frustrating. Do you notice that when your refrigerator calls, it's never the broccoli, it's always the cheesecake? <laughs> God has made the creation good. The issue is not whether the creation's good. The issue is whether my heart can love God and love the creation at the same time. And so the sweet steps towards death in chapter 5, we know that it's there, and yet we go to it. And so he begins setting us a stage about the choice between life and death at the beginning of chapter 5. You have to keep going to the next slide. You go. Keep going. Oh, maybe you went too far. Oh, you're, you're off. Okay, that's okay. We'll get there. Um, God's good. Um, and as we go through on, the, on that outline there, we're going to see that in chapters 5, the latter part of chapter 5, we find out what happens if you keep choosing death. You ever seen regret? I've never met a man at the end of his life who calls out and says, I should have worked more at the office. I should have played more video games. Why? Because when we face death, we suddenly realize the lacking value of everything we place value in, we place time in. From that groaning and regret, he takes us into the source of a lot of that regret in chapter 6. And he talks about the fact that I do not by nature love you. And he says, you know why you don't love? It's not because that person's disagreeable. It's because you are lazy. And your life is about you. My life is about me. And what is keeping me from loving others and loving God is that I love myself. And then he draws in very clearly in chapter 6 and verse 20 at the end of it. And he begins to talk how foolish sin is and yet how ensnared we are by it. And he says, you know what this is like? In chapter 6, verses 20 through 35, he describes a young man who decides to have adultery with another man's wife. And he talks about the arrival of that man to the scene and the unfolding of his wrath upon that man. And there is nothing that that man can do to turn back that other man's wrath. How much more so when somebody offends the bride of God? And that takes us to chapter 7. Chapter 7, as I've broken it down, we're going to take the first five verses. We're going to take verses 6 through 9. We're going to lastly take verses uh, 10 through 23 of this chapter. And what we're going to see in those verses is very simple. Avoid lady folly and be not lady folly, for her house is death. Chapter 7, begin with reading with me in verse 1, if you would, please. Chapter 7 in verse 1. My son, 
keep my words. And you will treasure my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live my instruction as the apple of your eye. Bind them upon your fingers. Write them upon the tablets of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and you will call understanding family. Why? To keep you from the foreign woman, that is, Lady Folly. From the foreign woman whose words are sweet. We're back to that sweetness. Now, let's take apart these verses. We're going to focus on here in verses 1 through 5 is that God's word restrains us from Folly's house. God's word restrains us from Folly's house. Look carefully back in verse 1. He talks about the father who I've said this is not just a regular father-son conversation. This is a father talking to a son with a bunch of sons. That's us to listen. And he says two things. Keep my words and what? Treasure them. Now, the, many, many of you don't know that I'm from Texas. And when I grew up as a boy, I treasured a lot of things. One of the things that I treasured as a boy was the only sport we had in Texas. Well, we really have two sports, football and spring football. And, and it's very true. So I grew up with this frame, daydreaming of being a Texas Longhorn and a Dallas Cowboy. And in my backyard, and this is not exaggerating, in my backyard, I won the Cotton Bowl National Championship for Texas countless times, hundreds upon hundreds of times. And I ran like Tony Dorsett and won the Super Bowl more times than even Jim, uh, uh, what was his name? J Jimmy Jones, there you go. Um, why? So this is what's interesting about you. God has made you so that you have desires. It is not bad that you have desires. It's what those desires are in you and what they produce in you. And for others, that is the principal problem. You are designed to go to the creation and to do what? To love it. But the problem is that just as a little boy, he was in love with the cowboys and longhorns. We take that which is meant to be a part of our lives, and we make it the whole of our lives. We make it ultimate. And I want to suggest to you about how I handled that as a boy. Let me tell you how passionate I was. Back then, if you wanted to get um, um, information on the Dallas Cowboys, you'd run. I lived, when I lived in Dallas, I'd go to the convenience store, gas station, and you would buy this poster during the preseason. And they would list all 46 players out there. They'd have them all listed there. And I would memorize every player and every number and every college. I knew the third string guard for the Cowboys back then. I could tell you what Tom Landry was going to call before it happened. I lived by it. I thought about it. I memorized it. It was soaked in, and then it poured out, which most of the time, being a Cowboys fan, it wasn't so bad. But sometimes it was. So this is what happens when we love the creation and make it ultimate rather than loving God and bringing His wisdom and His love to the creation. Here's exactly what happened, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Roger Staubach was one of the greatest quarterbacks who ever lived. He was known as a, the comeback kid. But when you have a comeback kid, that means your team is losing a lot. And I can remember, I didn't know it at the time, it was going to be a second-to-last football game. And we fell behind against the Washington Redskins. And I was mad, and I threw a fit. And my father, in his wisdom, turned off the TV. <sighs> Do you know what I missed? I missed the last comeback of Roger Staubach's career. A last-second amazing throw to a guy named Tony Hill. I know you haven't known him. Don't worry about who he is. I miss that. I really loved football. What did my father do? 
sent it off. Read about it the next day, but it wasn't the same, was it? You see, this is what idolatry does to me. It takes the things of the creation that are good, and I make them so important that they become me. Have y'all noticed during football season, your emotions are rather unstable in the state of South Carolina? (laughs) So listen to this. When I was a boy, Earl Campbell, if you don't know who Earl Campbell is, you need to look it up. He was a massive running back. He would go through you, around you. He was faster than you. He was stronger than you. He showed up in my elementary school in fourth grade, and each thigh was bigger than I was. That is not an exaggeration. And... I saw 11 games with Texas. That was my first year getting in, into it, and it was so much fun, and we were going to play Notre Dame for the national title. And I bet my neighbor across the street a quarter. I handed him this quarter, and I said, we're going to win. We're going to beat you, Notre whatever, fighting Irish, whatever. <laughs> we got throttled. And I can remember the next day how miserable my life was. But I cried, and I brought that quarter to my neighbor across the street. Now, that's all childish, and that's all reasonably harmless. But I want you to understand is football is not a problem. Sports are actually good. You learn about teamwork. You learn about suffering. You learn about sacrifice. You learn about losing. But that's not what we mostly do with it, is it? When he tells us here that we are to treasure his commandments with him, there are many things that we treasure. Many things that are valuable to us. And this speech is set up as a young man whose ultimate treasure is centered around the question of woman and sex. And some of us say, well, it's not about me. I'm not worried about that. Listen, that's just a model. That's a paradigm. Every person here has the same struggle as this young man is facing. You doubt me? Look at this. Some of us have an idol not only for sex, but maybe for having children or having children succeed. Maybe we take our good marriage and we make how it looks more important than God. What about our work? Any men in here who enjoy their job so much that they forget their family? Success, fame, these are all good things until they become ultimate. Diet and Facebook, I promise you, people get upset about sports, politics, and the last thing is, you better eat my diet. I take the way that I have chosen to live my life and say that everyone must do it this way. Why? Because I take that which is a part of my life and I make it ultimate. This is hard because as Christians, here's the truth. If I do not try to apply God's word, I'm a fool. But often when I apply God's word and I wrestle with it, and I discover my idols, and I come up with a way of living, I often enshrine that as if it is the gospel. This is the the tyranny of being human, is that even when I try to give God gifts, what happens? I elevate myself and my house above the house of the son of David. Video games. Stability. If you're a parent, it is good that you want stability for your kids but it can become an idol. It could be more important than enjoying God and enjoying the great commission and the great commandments. If you're a parent, you also probably enjoy sleep. It too can become an idol. Most of the time when I am challenged to discipline my kids, it's not because they've actually sinned. It's because they've interrupted my idol. Some of us enjoy being the hero. The gospel is going to take that away from us. Peace. Strength, beauty, budgeting. 
See, God's house takes things that are not good and makes them good. My house, which I want to reflect God's house, takes that which is good and makes it not good. Because instead of loving God and others, I begin to love myself and use others. And the scariest thing is when the church does that, because then we put God's name upon it. So as we look at this section, he says this, bind them on your fingers. Let what you do be restricted and restrained by them. Write them not merely on what you do, but on who you are. Write them on the tablet of your what? By the way, for those of you who don't think that Moses and these prophets are preaching the gospel, you explain that text without the gospel. Speak, he says, to wisdom, you are my sister. Now, some of you hate your sisters. That's not what this is about. A young man can be alone with his wife when they're married. But before that time, the woman who can give him access, who can give him wisdom is his sister. Say to wisdom, consummation is not yet here. Life is not yet here. So please come beside me. I'm waiting for the perfect wisdom to come. Wisdom, you are my sister. By the way, this is exactly what the Song of Songs does with that exact expression. And you will call knowledge family, radiant church. We always say we are a family, not like a family. Are we knowledge of God, our knowledge of ourself, and our way of doing things? Why is this so critical, especially for Radiant Church? To keep you from the adulterous woman, the strange woman, the foreign woman, because the world is promising what? Sweetness, sweetness, sweetness. I want you to understand that what... A young man's desire does for sex in this speech. It teaches us about the idolatry that invades our homes and invades our hearts. And, and the world is trying to overturn our desires into its image. God wants to overturn our desires into his image. Indeed, we are called to love the creator, but we often love the creation in idolatry. We have a focus on a love of self and desire that separates us from the great commission, the great commandments. One of the hard things is, is you've, as I said, you've got to apply God's word to your life, right? And if you make the way you apply God's word to your life ultimate, when it isn't ultimate, it's more based upon the situation God has put you in to restrain your sin, then you create points of division within the body. So do I. You recognize that part of doing a multi-ethnic church is we do not all do things the same way. You get that, right? And so we always have to ask, what is our point of unity? And unity must be the gospel itself. So then how do we deal with this tension between applying the gospel and developing rules and habits and liturgies and laws and not conflating it with the gospel? Well, here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Keep the gospel as the center and recognize that your habits, your traditions, your liturgies, the way you gather with your family, the way you gather alone are about keeping you close to the gospel, close to the source. Israel was given these laws, and this prop wisdom was given, not because in and of itself it was ultimate. What was ultimate was the God who provided it and being close to him. Your habits and your life, do they keep you close to the gospel? Take upon your life and look at what your idols are. Look at your sins and ask, oh, do I need to strategically put off this part of my life? If you struggle with eating too much cheesecake, you are normal. If you struggle with eating too much chocolate or watching too much football, you are normal. You cannot toy with that sin. You're going to come up with a solution that will be temporary and strategic. So you can say, you know what? I think that my heart is consumed by this. And I'm going to put a restraint on myself. That restraint is not the gospel. 
that is in a minute that I'm weak and that I'm going to spend time with God so that he can reshape my desires. And he will not do it in an instant. He will do it over time. You have to give him time. So what this means is we are faced with a terrible struggle here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. We are asked to take the word of God, what it says, theology, and connect it to how we live, practicality. But here's the problem. If your theology never evolves into practicality, you deny the gospel. And if you separate your theology from your practicality, it's not the gospel. Instead, what you need is theology to invade every part of life. And in a practical sense, what it means is you must meditate upon the scriptures day and night. And when you begin to think about living out the gospel, if you can forget the scriptures and do what you're doing, you're probably not doing theology God's way. Now, then we turn to verses 6 through 9, and we're going to see God watch from his house, the house of the son of David, the new heavens, the new earth. He's going to peer down and watch. And what I want you to think about is the fact that everything you have done since you have become a Christian, God is aware of, just as he was everything before and everything you will do. And he's watching. And if you'll notice, when you get mad at 20, on 26 and you're tempted to raise the non-holy finger to the person, God usually doesn't strike you down at that moment. He can what I want you to see is that God's patience and judgment upon our sin is because he sees us falling in love with the creation. And as a patient father, he wants us to walk in his wisdom. So here's what he does here. He's going to let us taste our sin. Look at uh, verse 6. For in the window of my house, this is the speaker, this is the voice of God, the wisdom of God going from father to son, father to son. Out of the lattice, I, I looked out. That's the same verb that's used when when uh, the, the pillar of uh, fire and, uh, and, and cloud looked down in Israel, when Abraham and, uh, looks down upon the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and so forth, he's looking down and he's watching. What does he see? I see amongst simple ones. I understand amongst sons a lad lacking heart. Now listen carefully to this. Unless we acknowledge that on our own in the old man, that part of us that has yet to be renewed in Christ... Unless we realize that we are simple and just mere sons and fools, we're going to follow the path that's here. And God is a good father. At times he'll intervene and at other times he'll do just the opposite of that. So watch what he does here. I saw amongst the simples, I understood amongst sons, even sons who could be his son, a lad lacking heart. Now your translations say lacking sense, but what I want you to understand is this means not merely lacking sense, but lacking sense in that. We love ourselves more than God and others. Verse 8. He passes on the street next to her corner. What's he wandering towards? What's he playing with? And in the street, he steps towards her house. And in the twilight, in the evening of the day, in the apple of the night. Oh, remember earlier he said, make my word the apple of your eye. Meditate upon it all the Now he says, what's happened? What has he begun to meditate upon? What has he begun to think about? Her and her house. And in the apple of the night, the middle of the night, the dark of the night in darkness, that's where he is. Now, when we look at these verses, what I want you to do is to recognize that we see a young man who is depicted as one who has a father looking out for him. And one of the hardest things to do as a parent is to realize when to step in and when not to step in. I have a certain child who shall remain nameless because that child is sitting here. Um, 
when that child was young, that child would go, I'm not going to use a pronoun, I was tempted there, would go and we'd say, don't touch the TV button. And we'd go and do it. And we'd discipline him. Do it again. Discipline him. Do it again. Discipline him. And what again? And over and over and over. Now, the great question is whether we were actually helping him or hurting him when we did that. And the ultimate measure for that is not what happened in that moment. Uh, That was going to be difficult no matter what. And for those of you who haven't yet had kids, you probably will, and I'm excited about that. But every category you have about the kind of parent you're going to be, you're not going to get there. Um, and, And the challenge is whether I am about stepping in or letting somebody enjoy the consequences of their sin. When I say enjoy, I mean that in the worst possible way. The sweet taste of our sin becomes bitter in our mouths over time. But why is God patient? He's patient because, ladies and gentlemen, that is one of the ways he teaches us. He has a wisdom about how to do that in my life and your life that I do not have. And being a father has taught me that I have to keep bringing God's conversation, the father's conversation, the scripture's conversation into my children's lives because I don't know sometimes when to say something or when to step back. Because if I discipline too much, I exasperate my children. I've violated scripture. If I ignore their sin, it says I hate my children. So what do I do? I need wisdom from God. I have to remember his house and his heart. I have to remember that God's intentions for me and my child and the whole creation are for life with him. And I have to ask, is this action going to encourage them about Jesus. Now, I don't mean encourage in the simple way like, oh, you can do it, boy. You cannot build a house for God. In fact, the whole idea of the Davidic covenant is David says, I want to build a house for you. God says, you don't even know what you're talking about. You will not build a house for me. I will build a house for you. And how did David enjoy this house? He responded to this house. He responded to the word. This man here is not responding to the word. He's forgotten the word. Imagine the people of God hearing about God and ignoring Him. As we turn on our TV, as we go to work, as we deal with the conflicts, we can either seek the wisdom that comes from God in the Scriptures or we can run from it. Indeed, what I want you to recognize is what I said before, that we have to connect our theology to our practical living and we have to do it in humility and grace that lifts up Jesus and not us. When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, He's not giving us a two-step program. He's not saying, seek me, then seek the creation. He's saying, you will seek me, and in so doing, as you learn to love me, you will learn to love your neighbor. And if you're not interested in loving your neighbor, you've never really loved me in the first place. Do you understand how impossible that is unless the Word of God and the Spirit of God, the wisdom of God, overturns you? So when that sink fell apart yesterday, and it did right in my hands, um, I was angry. I was angry because I thought for once in my life I finally fixed something, and I didn't. Um, It was a disaster, and I had to personally and continually repent to my kids for that sin. Why? Do you know what my little daughter, when she did this morning? She goes, Daddy sinned. (laughs) I said, you are exactly right. Daddy got angry at the sink. You're exactly right. Some of you would be afraid to admit to your kids that you're a sinner. I want to plead with you from the bottom of your heart. There is nothing more foolish than you can do than that. Others of you will just say it's no big deal that I sin. That is equally 
as foolish. How do you bring the wisdom of the house of God, the son of David, into your house in that moment? You repent. You acknowledge God is right. I am wrong. And the cross can fix it. Even that stupid stink. It may not be today, but it will be in the end. And I wish you could have seen my older kids who have seen their father repent more times than I want to ever admit come and try to minister to me yesterday. If you go to any of my kids, even Lucy now, and you ask them, why are we going to church? They'll say to encourage people about Jesus. We started it when they were little because they didn't understand why they were going to church. And the next thing we did is we said, why are we going to Target? To encourage people about Jesus. Why are we riding in the van? To encourage people about Jesus. Why are we going to see your grandparents? To encourage people about Jesus. Why is dad going to work? To encourage people. My house is broken and flawed like I am, but I believe that the scriptures, the word of God and the spirit of God can take even the broken parts of my lives and change them if I am willing to let the light of the gospel shine in through my repentance. Some of you think repentance is just saying, sorry, I got caught. That is not repentance. To repent is to shuv in Hebrew, to return. And that is to trust that what God has started in the cross will fix it. Now, God's patience is with us that he's going to show us the end of the young man who knew about God and wandered away, who sat through sermons and wandered away, who came to church and wandered away, who had parents who loved the Lord and wandered away. And verse 10 will take us there and its picture will not be pretty. It says that God allows us to live in Folly's house unto the point of death. Behold, a woman came out to meet him. The garment of a prostitute and the guarded heart. She is boisterous and rebellious, and her feet will not dwell in her house, will not stay in her house. Now, wait a second. I told you, not only is the message, don't go to Lady Folly, it also is don't be Lady Folly. And I want you to look at her house. What can she not do in her house in that verse? You know why? God has set eternity in your heart. Your house is designed for God to dwell in. You're bigger on the inside, to quote a TV show. Why? Because God is far more than you could ask or imagine, and he wants to live life with you. And she's not satisfied, and some of us in this room are not satisfied with what God has allotted to us. And so we wander. We are not only the young man, we are often the lady folly. We, in other words, what I'm telling you is that everything you do impacts everyone around you. Do you want to know why it's so important to have a culture and a people who take care of their kids well in families? Because that's the next set of houses. Look at where she is. You're going to think she's a superhero here. At once she's in the outside, at once in the streets. Next to every corner, she lies in wait. Now, either she is a superhero, or this description of lady folly is a description of ladies' folly. All of us. And listen to what it says. What do we do when we make idols of our success and our career and our fame and our money? When we become dissatisfied with the affection that God has given us in Christ, in this family, as a church, in the gospel, and in our, in our marriage and so forth? He grasps, or she grasps him. She kisses him. She grabs his face and she says to him, sacrifices of peace offerings are upon me. Today I have fulfilled my vows. 
This is one of many men she's sacrificing. Whatever idol you love, you are sacrificing to. Whether it be your time, whether it be your money, whether it be your children. Therefore, he's gonna ma- she's going to make him the center of his universe. Therefore, I went out to meet you to, to seek your face diligently, and I found you. What happened is she placed him at the center of the story, and suddenly, oh, I must be special. Do you know how appealing it is? When you talk to people in a troubled marriage and somebody of the opposite gender comes up and starts saying sweet things to them, that is death. I have uh, spread over my bed uh, coverings and the dark, uh, the dark uh, yarn of, of Egypt, and I have, I have laid down them upon myrrh and aloe and cinnamon. Go and let us drink of love until the morning, and let us delight in love. Indeed, listen, there is something that you love. You were designed to love. You were going to either love the creation as ultimate or the creator as ultimate. And you can only love the creator as ultimate through Christ, through repentance and through trust in him. But this is the temptation. This is the battle. This is what God is watching. Some of us struggle even this week. For the husband is not in his house. He has gone on a long journey. A silver bag he took with him. And the day of the full moon, he will come back to his house. Oh, there's plenty of time to get what we want in a getaway. In chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 5, in chapter 6, he has warned us about that moment of temptation. What happens? He has, uh, he has turned her with the abundance of her teaching. Listen to this. Everyone is teaching you. Whatever you love in the world, somebody is teaching you something. Whatever you're doing is teaching somebody something. The greatest teacher in America right now is Netflix and Disney+. Plus. How do I know that? Just look at how many streaming hours are there. And I'm not picking on that. If your family wants to do that, that's fine. But you cannot counter the idolatry that is going to stir up if the only teaching you're getting is outside of the scriptures. I want you to do what I do, in some ways at least, not the same way that I do it, because that would be making my application our point of unity. Here's what I want you to do. Our family, we love to watch movies. We love it. We love it. Sometimes we love it too much. So I don't let us stream through shows nonstop. Tonight, we're going to finally see the ending of Lost in Space. My kids are so excited. They begged me last night. But I knew when I saw them begging that this was the right decision. Why? Because I'm a steward of my children's heart. So he goes after her suddenly. See him turn? And as an ox, he will go to the slaughter, as an anklet to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces his liver, as, as a bird hastens to the snare. He does not know that it is his life. The end of idolatry is death. You and I are in a fallen world to one, learn one lesson, that idols are only idols. They cannot conquer death, because that is God's way of teaching us that only God is present for life in death. God is not abandoning us when death goes up. So here's the ending, starting in verse 24. And now, O sons, hear me. Listen to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart, you hear where this battle is? Do not let your heart turn to her ways. Do not wander in her paths, for uh, she has slain many fallen ones, and strong ones all have been slayed by her. The path to her house is Sheol. And he goes down to the chambers of death. And they go down to to the chambers of death. Every idol ends in the end at the same place. God made the creation good, but when he made the creation good, 
he did this. He placed a serpent in the garden. One of the key questions I want you to wrestle with is why did God put the serpent there? God was just as good to Adam and Eve in creation as he was in Genesis 3. Why do you think God's not there? Because Adam stopped talking about him. Who's supposed to talk about God in this culture? Why did it feel God wasn't present? Because Adam was silent. He was God's prophet. He was God's priest. He was God's king. And she put off divine wisdom, put on human wisdom. Why did God do that? Because the central lesson that Adam had to learn is a central lesson we must learn. Adam was not the man, which is ironic because that's what his name means. The man. You and I are not the heroes of our story. And our wisdom has an end, but there's a son whose wisdom goes from beginning to end. And as Abraham took Isaac up to Mount Moriah, and God said, take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, the part of the creation most treasured to him, he took it up to the face of God. And what did he discover? As they were getting ready to go up there, he said, you guys stay here. Isaac and I, we will go on. We will worship. And this next thing is so important. We will return. He was willing to take any part of his life, even his most treasured son, and say, let this part of my life be about you. And what happened? Where it looked like he was going to lose his son, he gained his son. Where it looked like you living by biblical principles will cost you everything, and it will cost. Life will emerge that you never saw possible. But we have to be willing to trust that the gospel is indeed powerful and true. Wisdom indeed is going to contend to us today that I am a work in progress, as are you. But also that I am not the solution. And so the key to God overturning your house is to make sure that the solution is exposed in how you live your life. Your house is a place where the Word of God and the Spirit of God can bring dead places to life. Indeed, I am trusting Jesus to finish what he started in me and in the whole creation. I am loving him by spending time with him and giving his life to others. And lastly, in wisdom, I am bringing my life to God, every part of my life to God, not at once, over time, slowly, noticing the times that I haven't done that. I believe, help my unbelief, so that the wisdom of God, the love of God, the gospel of God can be ultimate, so that I can see people who hate me today, who are on the other side of the political aisle, who are enemies at work, enemies in the neighborhood, and I can see them go from death to life. Wisdom enshrines Jesus. And as we close, it's important to me that as a congregation, that we recognize that it, our relationship to God is bound up in our relationship to the Scriptures, our relationship to each other, because it's bound up in the person that the Scriptures proclaim. As the band comes forward, I want to encourage you to think carefully about the parts of your life that today have snuck up on you and have ensnared you that this week have challenged you and tempted you, have caused you to put on a part of life that either will harm you or harm others and fall upon your knees and say, God, I repent. You know why it's so important? Because there is a world watching you and you are the means whereby people can see Jesus. Let's pray.